0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of and audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
2: Welcome to Part Time Genius, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango?
2: So, you're never going to believe this, but I finally found a New Zealand bird that's even more endearing than the Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I actually feel weird saying this, but I know I need to congratulate you because I'm pretty sure this has been a dream of yours for a while now. So so congrats.
2: Yeah, May-o. thank you. I mean, some days I doubted it was even possible, but yeah. this week I read about these big green parrots that live there called Kayas, mm-hmm. and they are so mischievous and so clever that I just had to give them the top spot because I know it's a controversial pick, but I like to keep things spicy.
0: Wait, you're saying this is actually controversial?
2: Yeah. So uh, unlike Kiwis, chaos aren't universally adored. They're kind of these one and a half foot tall mischief makers, and they will steal laces from boots or strip the rubber off your windshield wipers. <laughs> but the wildest prank I've heard is that chaos actually drag traffic cones into the middle of the road and leave them there. <laughs> and some researchers believe this is an intentional act. Like it's a crafty way to get drivers to slow down enough that the parrots can beg for food.
0: Wow. I mean, that is kind of a neat trick. It also does sound a little bit dangerous. I wonder how many of these get hit.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's become a real problem, but the good news is that there's this conservation team in New Zealand that's been testing this ingenious way to keep the chaos distracted. They've installed all these little parrot gyms by the roadside, <laughs> and so it kind of looks like a miniature jungle gym with swings and spinning toys and little ladders, I guess.
0: I kind of feel like everything you've said to this point may not actually be true, but I'm, I'm going to go with <laughs> it. So are, are these, you call them gyms, are these gyms actually helping?
2: Yeah, they are. So uh, far fewer birds are messing with traffic cones and the roads are a whole lot safer. But, you know, these parrot gyms aren't the only out of the box solution that New Zealand's come up with over the past few years. From uh, state approved wizards to car driving dogs, the country has plenty of eccentricities to go around. So for today's show, I thought we could dive into some of that.
0: Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Ticketer. On the other side of the soundproof glass, just sipping his way through what he claims is a hokey pokey milkshake. That's what <laughs> that's what he says, at least. That is our friend and producer, Lol. So I, I don't know what a hokey pokey milkshake is. You dip one finger
2: in, you dip one finger out. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I guess so. Any, anytime anyone says hokey pokey, it reminds me of that shirt we made at Metal Floss.
0: Oh, they. It's, I, uh, that. I was trying to remember that it said Hokey Pokey Anonymous. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and and, and the tagline was a place to turn yourself around, which <laughs> I I, I kind of loved. I actually saw someone in that shirt this year, which which amazed me. But, oh, that's uh, awesome. Let's keep the focus on Lowell here, the way he likes it. Right, uh, right. Well, what exactly is a Hokey Pokey uh, milkshake?
0: Yeah, so I've, I've, I've pulled it up here. So Hokey Pokey is, I guess, what we'd call honeycomb toffee. You know, we always call things honeycomb toffee. <laughs> but it's like this light, crunchy candy made from brown sugar and corn syrup. And apparently everyone in New Zealand fell in love with the flavor way back in the 1940s. And they have been obsessed with it ever since, especially when it takes the form of milkshake, so now I, I see why he just seems so happy over there
2: i mean it's a great nickname i also really like the cup he's drinking it from mm-hmm. i i i wish listeners could see it it's a white cup with a red and blue cartoon giraffe on the side mm-hmm. and in big red letters it says the longest drink in town mm. I, I mean if you're going to tout how big your beverage is it it feels so much cooler than, like, a big goal.
0: Yeah, a long, a long drink. Yeah, I, actually, <laughs> I, I looked this up, too, and the longest drink in the World Cup is actually pretty iconic. So this design debuted in the 1960s, and for the next several decades, it was featured on just about every paper milkshake cup in the country. Oh, wow. It became synonymous with summertime in New Zealand, and thanks in large part to that widespread nostalgia— The longest drink in the world is still served up at New Zealand ice cream parlors today. Also, just because I kind of fell in love with the lingo this week, I have to mention that if you're inspired to bring ice cream or cold milk to work, just like Lowell did today, a cooler in New Zealand is called a chili bin. I kind of like that.
2: <laughs> I like that. So, uh, where do you want to start today?
0: All right. Well, how about we start with the country's name? Like, this is something that's always confused me because if the country is New Zealand, that kind of implies that there is an old Zealand out there, right? So, maybe just or just Zealand, I guess. So I was curious about this.
2: I guess I, I hadn't really thought about that. Like, is there a Zealand in in Europe or or somewhere?
0: There actually is. The original Zealand is all the way over in the far west of the Netherlands. And just like with the names of early American cities and states, it goes back to the era of European exploration. And in New Zealand's case, it goes back to a Dutch explorer named Abel Tasman, the namesake of Tasmania. So in 1642, Tasman was off exploring the Southern Pacific Ocean. This was on behalf of the Dutch East India Company. And it was on that voyage that he stumbled upon the territories that we now know as Tonga, Fiji, and New Zealand. So when Tasman got home, he told his fellow navigators what he'd found, and pretty soon the islands were added to the charts of their day. So as for the name, Dutch mapmakers were already calling Australia New Holland at the time, so they just decided to keep this convention going and named Tasman's territory New Zealand, after a coastal province in the southwest region of the Netherlands. So British colonists later settled on the island about 100 years later, but by then the Dutch name was so established that they just decided to keep it and just anglicize the spelling of it.
2: Do we know why the Dutch named it Zealand in the first place? Like, was there something about New Zealand that reminded them of this old Zealand?
0: Yeah, I guess it was the geography. I mean, apparently the province in the Netherlands is made up of a bunch of little islands and peninsulas with rivers crossing through them and because of that, that, yeah, it it really is. I've actually never been. Have you ever been there before, the New Zealand? No, I, I haven't. I haven't either. And so because of that, the Dutch call the region Zealand, which translates as sea land. So it's maybe not the most creative name in the world, but certainly a fitting one for the area.
2: Well, since you brought up geography and map makers, I, I think it's time we address the fact that a lot of modern maps don't include New Zealand. And the country is just straight up missing with nothing <laughs> more than ocean where its cluster of 600 plus islands should be.
0: Actually, I had heard about this. I mean, this is a pretty widespread error, though, right?
2: It is, yeah. There's, there's actually an entire Maps Without New Zealand subreddit where users <laughs> have cataloged hundreds of examples of places that use bad maps, including video games, magazines, textbooks, hotels, restaurants, IKEA, even. Uh, wow. For for, for instance, uh, did you know that giant rotating globe that sits in front of Universal Studios? Yeah. That is missing New Zealand. No way. Also, the map on the risk board, it's missing New Zealand. Uh, there, there are even some international airports that have maps without New Zealand hung in their terminals, even though they offer flights straight to New Zealand.
0: Wow. I mean, a country that according to their maps doesn't exist. It gets to It gets to a point where people just feel like they should just keep going with it just to be jerks about it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and and I'm sure it's some sort of existential problem for for New Zealanders. But it's pretty funny how far this goes. So like there's a world map in front of the United Nations office in Geneva. And apparently New Zealand isn't on that, despite the country being a founding member. (laughs) And if all that wasn't bad enough, New Zealand actually uses these maps themselves. Gabe pointed me to this, but it's on their 404 error page for its official government website. And it shows a world map that doesn't include its own country, which is intentional.
0: Actually, I just pulled this up, and it's pretty funny. It has this 404 map and says something is missing. And, you know, it's cute (laughs) that they've got this sense of humor about it, but why does this phenomenon of cutting New Zealand off maps keep happening? I mean, there are definitely smaller places in the world.
2: Yeah, I I mean, it's mostly because of that Mercator projection, which Mm -hmm. is the one that most world maps are based on. And as you might expect, it has a serious old world bias. This map places Europe in the dead center often, while poor New Zealand is shoved way down in the bottom right-hand corner. And the result is it's kind of an awkward placement, and it's easy to crop. And if a designer isn't careful, they might try to trim some of the Pacific Ocean from the image and wind up mm-hmm. lopping off an entire country in the process. Mm-hmm. But, you know, judging by the number of places that, that these maps have turned up, it's apparently something that happens all the time. But New just kind of taken it in stride. Actually, there's this uh, Kiwi comedian, Rhys Darby, and this is how he puts it. Quote, we are quite a fiddly-looking shaped country, a bit like a half-eaten lamb chop. Perhaps people are just leaving us off thinking we're a mistake. (laughs)
0: That's such a great (laughs) line. Yeah, it's funny what you said about European bias, because I guess you could use a projection of a Mercator map that places New Zealand at the center, and it wouldn't be any more inaccurate.
2: That's true. And in fact, many maps in New Zealand classrooms actually do that. They, They place Middle Earth in the actual middle of the Earth.
0: I mean, it's hard to argue with the logic on that one. But, all right, well, here's another thing I read this week and, and wanted to talk about. So this was in 2016, New Zealand spent over 17 million U.S. dollars uh, on a contest to redesign its national flag. And then the country voted to just keep the flag they already had. I guess it turned <laughs> out to be not such a bad flag. So that I, I, 17 million dollars. That's, that's crazy.
2: I know it it kind of makes me want to see the other designs, like, do you know how bad they were?
0: So well, I mean, the the contest was open to the public, and over ten thousand people submitted designs, <laughs> many of which were actually pretty elegant and and well designed. I mean, there's some really pretty ones on there. But, yeah, there were also some really horrible ones. One of my favorites is this blue and red one here. It's, it's got this very crudely drawn sheep on the the blue half because New Zealand has a lot of those, obviously. And then on the red half, there's an equally crudely drawn ice cream cone. So just you yes. know, two things they like to think about. <laughs> I
2: mean, I, I bet I can guess what flavor that is.
0: Oh, I know you can. It's rum raisin. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's it's it's, a, it's hokey pokey, of course. And the artist That's even reason. included little flecks of the candy in their drawing to make that as clear as possible.
2: Can you imagine if that became the new flag? Like, yeah. if they cleaned up the design, it'd be the most beloved flag in the world, I think. You know,
0: it, it does. I mean, it feels like because they're able to sort of laugh at their situation, they might have gone with something like that. But there was actually another one that has a black flag with a silver fern, which is one of the country's national symbols, which is elegant enough. But the real highlight is it's got this kiwi bird on the other side, and it's blasting this green laser beam from its eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably not the most scientifically accurate flag in the world. But, you know, I mean, it's pretty interesting.
2: It might be the most
0: badass, though. I,
2: think I mean, might I, I, I can see why New Zealand kind of decided to stick with their old flag. But <laughs> why was there like such a push to change it in the first place?
0: Well, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the real New Zealand flag.
2: Very. I played a lot of uh, Carmen San Diego as a kid.
0: That's right. Well, as a refresher for anybody who's listening, it's basically a blue flag with a Union Jack symbol in the top left hand corner and four red stars on the body representing the Southern Cross constellation. So the original design is 100 years old or so. And for a long time now, people have debated whether it was appropriate to have a British symbol on the New Zealand flag, you know, since it's a sovereign country, but technically still part of the British Commonwealth.
2: So, I mean, the other thing that's always struck me is odd is, is like how close the flag actually looks to Australia's flag.
0: Yeah, that was one of the other main contentions that the flag is too derivative and not really representative of New Zealand. But despite all these complaints, when the issue was finally put to a national vote, 56% of New Zealanders voted to keep the original flag versus 43% who voted for the new fern design. And the reason for that upset is pretty interesting. According to interviews conducted by The Guardian, Many New Zealanders voted against the new flag simply because they'd grown disillusioned with how costly the campaign was.
2: $17 million is is a lot of money.
0: Yeah, and you know they didn't want the country to spend more money on top of that to produce tens of thousands of new flags to replace all the old ones. So anyway, well, well, now that we've gotten the lay of the land, let's zoom in a little bit closer and talk about the finer details that make New Zealand such a special place. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break.
3: inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about some of New Zealand's strangest claims to fame. All right, Mango, the wheel is yours. So where do you want to go first?
2: So I really like that fact about where the new in New Zealand's name comes from. But there's actually a hill on the North Island of New Zealand with an even better story behind its name. It's this thousand foot hill. It's named after Tamatea, who's a legendary explorer from New Zealand's Maori culture, part of their mythical Mm -hmm. uh, culture there. And Tamatea is said to have been one of the first ever to step foot on New Zealand long, long before any European colonists came along. And The Summit of the Hill is where he supposedly played the nose flute for his beloved. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the nose flute? It, it, yeah. Is that what I think it is?
2: Yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. It, it, it's a flute you play by exhaling through your nose.
0: Wow. This, you know, I know how we like to give tips to our listeners, so I feel good about this one. Like, if you ever need to charm someone with a private nose flute concert, then Tamatea Hill, is, that, that's the place to go, it seems like.
2: Here's the thing. It's not actually called Tamatea Hill. The Maori people wanted to really celebrate Tamatea's exploits and not sell him short. So they named the hill using an entire sentence. And roughly translated, it's an 85-character name. It means the summit where Tamatea, the man with the big knees, the slider, climber of mountains, the land swallower, who traveled about, played his nose flute to his loved one.
0: <laughs> and the name means all of that. Like, wouldn't you love to be known as the man with the big knees? Like, <laughs> I feel like that's great, but it's such such a great title. I do feel like you buried the lead here. Well, what is this 85-character name? How do you say it?
2: So I'm going to apologize a little because my, uh, my Maori is a little rusty, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is how it goes. <laughs> I am butchering this, but right. it goes on. Oh, you on. think? That, that, that... <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so long. People Kaka should look this up.
2: Kapu... It goes stop.
0: You should really <laughs> stop at that And point. I'm really not trying to be disrespectful, Yeah, yeah. but <laughs>
2: it, it, it is... <laughs> Amazing. And it makes for a very, very long street sign. It's actually the longest place name in the world, according to Guinness. The wildest part, though, is that there's actually an unofficial version of the name that adds an extra 20 characters worth of details. Wow! So uh, according to Atlas Obscura, the extended version translates as the hill of the nose flute playing by Tamateo, who was blown hither from afar, had a split penis, grazed his knees, climbing mountains, (laughs) fell on the earth, and encircled the land to his beloved. (laughs) That's so good. Before you ask, uh, that one part is a reference to basically what's a Maori version of a circumcision.
0: Oh, got it. Yeah, I was was kind of curious. Well, for any geography nerds who find themselves in New Zealand, another can't miss landmark on your list should be the slightly more plainly named Baldwin Street. So it's located in the city of Dunedin, and uh, Baldwin Street is one of the steepest streets in the world. It only runs about three hundred fifty meters, which is less than a fourth of a mile, but For every three horizontal meters, there is a rise of one meter. So the result is that it takes 10 minutes or more to basically climb up this relatively short street. It's pretty crazy.
2: What I want to know is why would anyone put a street there to begin with? It seems like if the land is that steep, it'd be easier to just kind of plan around it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I'm sure that's exactly what the city planner would have done had he actually looked at the land he was planning for. Instead, though, the city was planned by these London-based designers who never bothered to see the topography in person. They just laid out a grid system on top of a flat map and called it a day, I guess. And that oversight resulted in a number of these incredibly steep streets with Baldwin being the most extreme of them.
2: Wait, so are, are there houses on Baldwin Street?
0: There actually are houses. And the cool thing is they are all built into this hill at an angle. It's worth taking a look at it. So if you walk down or up Baldwin Street you'll pass a row of these severely slanted houses.
2: I just pulled it up. This is insane. It's yeah. like you're living in like one of those old uh, V8 commercials. Right. Like everything's <laughs> right. tilted. It, it's amazing. It, it, it does feel like it would be a dream for Instagrammers, but yeah. really a huge pain in the neck for residents. But, you know, we've talked uh, about a couple of special places that New Zealanders can boast about. But why don't we talk about one of their exceptional citizens next?
0: All right. So so who would that be? Let me, let me guess. Is it one of the uh, the Flight of the concords?
2: No, I mean, that's a good guess. But but this guy's birth name is Ian Brackenbury Channel. Mm-hmm. But today, people around the world know him simply as the Wizard. And he is the wizard, mind you, not, not a wizard, uh, because not only does he have the driver's license to prove it, he also has the backing of New Zealand's government. Back in 1990, the country's prime minister made Channel the world's First and still only state-appointed wizard.
0: I have so many questions about this, but I, <laughs> I guess the first one is how exactly one gets appointed the official wizard of New Zealand.
2: I think it starts with the wardrobe, but uh, but New Zealand's wizard has a pretty impressive uh, resume. He, he was born in London in 1932 and later served as a navigator in the Royal Air Force. In 1963, he earned a double BA in psychology and sociology and uh, began teaching in the Middle East and Australia. And given his dual fields of study as a teacher, uh, Channel was especially interested in experimental teaching and, and social reform techniques. But as for his wizarding career, that started to take off in the mid-70s. And, and that's when Channel began appearing throughout New Zealand as a public speaker. He would dress in a long black robe and a wizard's hat. And of course, he carried a staff Mm -hmm. and then he'd go to Cathedral Square in Christchurch and and he'd climb up on a ladder and share his views on all sorts of topics with passers by, no matter how taboo the subject. So public officials initially tried to have him banned from the premises, but eventually they gave up and the wizard kind of became this weird cultural institution slash uh, tourist attraction.
0: All right. So to to sum this up, you had a decorated British veteran turned Australian school teacher who made his way to New Zealand, began dressing as a wizard, lost his mind and began scaring (laughs) people in the streets. Did, Did I have that right? Yeah. I mean, everything except the lost his mind part, like the
2: wizard was and is eccentric, but he still has a firm grip on his mind. His body, though, was donated to the National Gallery of Victoria, which officially recognizes it as a living work of art.
0: <laughs> of course they did. I mean, nothing about this surprises me at this point. But All right, so he's harassing people on this ladder, and, and then what?
2: Well, from there, the city of Christchurch kind of fell under his spell. He got super popular. Uh, in, in fact, the director of the Robert McDougall Art Gallery in Christchurch actually contacted the National Gallery of Victoria and they arranged to have the living work of art title transferred to Christchurch. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, I, it's this is all real, and and the wizard's fame only grew from there. So in 1980, he was appointed to be the official arch wizard of Canterbury, and then ten years after that, he was appointed wizard of New Zealand by Prime Minister Mike Moore.
0: And, and remind me again what a state-appointed wizard actually does.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So this is the official proclamation that 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 was uh, declared at the time.
0: Quote. The
2: first wizard of New Zealand is entitled to wear the appropriate regalia and required to carry out the duties of national wizard, namely to protect the government, to bless new enterprises, cast out evil spites, upset fanatics, cheer up the population, and most importantly, design and promote a new and improved universe, which puts New Zealand on top of the world both physically and metaphysically. (laughs)
0: So now that the truth comes out, you forget Middle Earth, they actually want to be on top of it, I think is the, the issue here, right?
2: Yeah, so so I, I'm rooting for them and for the wizard, and, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that either. The wizard retired from his active duties back in 2005, but he still speaks publicly on occasion, and to this day, he remains a beloved figure in in Christchurch. In, in fact, there's one quick story that really shows how big a role the wizard has played in the community there. This is back in 1995, when the Christchurch City Council hosted a whole week of activities to celebrate his 21st year as the local wizard. So festivities began with the wizard hovering above a rugby match in a helicopter, and and he was chanting a spell the whole time, which uh, supposedly helped the home team win the game. But it concluded with him hatching from a giant egg inside the city's art gallery.
0: <laughs> so he hatched from an egg?
2: Yeah, and this is years <laughs> before uh, Lady Gaga did, but... Right. Uh, You know, to to complete the process, everyone in attendance had to chant the correct hum while he was hatching.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like this is the perfect place for an ad break. We'll be back with more stories in just a minute.
3: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability
1: in select areas.
3: Visit at slash hypergig for
1: details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. All right, Mango, so New Zealanders have a reputation for being some of the friendliest and really most cheerful people in the world. I think most of the stories we've talked about today kind of attest to that in, in one way or another, but... The people there do have a somber side, just like anybody else. And a growing number of Kiwis have taken up a new pastime to help fill their more reflective moments. And that's actually building their own coffins.
2: Huh? That, that's unusual. Well, why is that?
0: Well, it's a trend that's been going on for about a decade now. And it started back in 2010 when the Kiwi Coffin Club was formed in the town of uh, Rotorua. I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But according to its mission statement, the club is meant to provide, quote, an environment in which issues of death and loss can be raised, addressed, understood, and accepted through discussion, support, and the activity of painting and lining your own coffins.
2: I mean, I I guess I can see how that could be cathartic or, or maybe even sobering in a way.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's a, you know, it's filling a need since the first one in 2010, coffin clubs have actually sprung up all across New Zealand, with some of the bigger ones boasting more than 200 members and counting. In fact, most members view the actual coffin building as a way to celebrate their lives and showcase their personalities.
2: So are, are these coffins themed?
0: Sometimes they are, yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on what the builder wants. Some people build plain wooden coffins. Others go a little bit more elaborate. So for instance, I saw one that had a hand-painted nature scene on the exterior and another that had a collage of Elvis photos. And it, it turns out there are really no rules for DIY coffin building. <laughs>
2: Uh, is that line in the brochure.
0: I'm I'm sure it is, or if it's not, they can use it if they want. But it's a pretty upbeat way to embrace death. And the meetings are kind of this three-part blend. Like it's a woodworking class, it's a therapy group, it's a social mixer. And as one club treasurer, John Russell, told the Atlantic we had a TV crew come to film one of our meetings thinking it would be formal, but they were astonished to see that we chat about everything but death and dying. It's a really great atmosphere.
2: And has this expanded to other countries or is it just kind of stayed local to New Zealand?
0: You know, I was actually wondering the same thing. And in that same story, The Atlantic reports that coffin clubs have since launched in Australia and the UK. And yes, even here in the US, the first one opened earlier this year in Cleveland, Ohio, So heads up to our listeners, there is a waiting list for the club right now. So if you're on a tight schedule, you might want to think about just starting up your own chapter.
2: That is uh, kind kind of amazing. I don't want to end the show on a build-your-own-coffin theme. So so I'm going to tell you about uh, the time New Zealand taught some dogs to drive a car.
0: Oh, wow. And so successfully did this?
2: Yeah. So this happened back in 2012 when New Zealand's SPCA realized that not enough people were adopting their dogs. So the organization came up with a very sane and very sensible solution. They were going to teach a couple of their dogs how to drive a car. And, and I, I guess for some reason, this seemed to make them more appealing. According to the group's Facebook page, quote, our dogs may be a motley bunch, but they're all smart and they're all lovable. So please don't write them off. Adopt <laughs> them. If we can teach one to drive, we think you'll do just fine.
0: Wow. So, so how did they do this?
2: The plan for the stunt was to have the dogs drive a modified mini uh, along a racetrack while mm-hmm. sitting on their haunches in the driver's seat. So they customized the brake pedal and a clutch. For some reason, they didn't teach them to go automatic. They they, uh, they they taught them to shift gears, but they made it long enough for for the dogs to actually reach them. So the dogs went through five weeks of indoor training where where they were encouraged to touch and move replica brake pedals. And, and gear sticks and, and steering wheels. And then once the dogs had mastered the driving position and how to steer, they moved on to these little go-karts. And after a few weeks of that, the pups were ready to hit the road. Um, so in December, uh, one warm December day in, uh, in New Zealand, they, these two dogs took to the, the racetrack. And uh, the first dog to make history was one named Porter. He was a 10-month-old beardy cross. And he drove this mini straight and then and then around a turn. And then Monty followed him. He was an 18-month-old schnauzer cross, and he completed the same course. And and to their credit, both dogs were wearing (laughs) seatbelts.
0: I'm curious, though, did this stunt work? Like, did the dogs find homes?
2: Yeah, so uh, as you might imagine, the SPCA in Auckland was swamped with calls from people who wanted to adopt these two amazing dogs. Uh, in, In the end, they actually decided to give the pups to the trainer who'd spent these two months Training them to drive the cars, but uh, Porter and Monty's stunt was broadcast live online, and and it helped drive up adoption rates kind of around the world. In in fact, the campaign was so popular in New Zealand that a year later, the SPCA uh, launched a follow up where every dog adopted was given its own car to drive home in. But this time, like it was, it was kind of uh, a a crate. It wasn't a real car, and and the this box opened up into sort of a cozy dog bed.
0: I feel like that's more my dog speed, but Uh all right. Well, you were right, Mango. That was a nice way for uh, for us to close out the show, although we're not quite done yet because, like a map without New Zealand, our show isn't complete without a fiddly shaped fact off. All right, so like I mentioned earlier, I've been really digging Kiwi slang this week. And so here's another word you can expect me to slip into our conversation soon. Jandals. That's the the New Zealand word for flip-flops. And it was coined by a Kiwi businessman who was inspired by the footwear he saw on a trip to Japan. So soon after, he and his son started making their own version of the rubber slip-ons in their own garage in New Zealand. And as a way to pay homage to the culture that inspired it all, They name their product Jandals, which is sort of like a portmanteau of the words uh, Japanese and sandals.
2: So, you know, the kids show Power Rangers, right? It, it, of it course, I do. A, <laughs> <kidding>? <laughs> I'm not. Let's do a whole show on Power Rangers so I can explain it to you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, so, you know, the show was massively popular. It was, it was uh, filmed with this like existing footage in Japan and then, and then new characters in California and other mm-hmm. places. But, but uh, you know, the, the show was a massive success and it got imported all around the world, but not to New Zealand. Uh, the show was actually banned there for being too violent. And huh. and this was true even after production for the show shifted to New Zealand in the late 90s. More than a dozen seasons of the long-running show were filmed there over the years, but kids in New Zealand didn't get to see any of it until the ban was lifted in 2011.
0: Wow. Thank goodness. It was lifted. <laughs> well, you've probably heard all the rumors about all the crazy laws that New Zealand supposedly has, like the one that prohibits, quote, malicious bell ringing, Unfortunately, while that was really a law in New Zealand, at one point it is no longer on the books. In fact, the country has been pretty good about updating its laws and doing away with weird, outdated stuff. But there is at least one exception, though. According to the New Zealand Herald, it is still against the law to say no questions asked when advertising a reward for missing property. So if your dog drives off with the car one day, you can't post a flyer asking them for their return, no questions asked. If you do, you could actually be slammed with a fine of up to $200.
2: Here's a nice feel-good story from a few years back. In 2016, 40,000 New Zealanders banded together and bought the country a brand new public beach. And when the 800-meter stretch of sand went up for sale early that year, uh, two brothers-in-law, Adam Gardner and Dwayne Major, decided to launch a crowdfunding campaign to try and keep the beach from falling into private ownership. So during the campaign, individuals and corporations alike pitched in to help buy the park. Uh, the New Zealand government even got into action. They threw in uh, $225,000, uh, U.S. Hmm. dollars to the effort. And in the end, the donors raised about $1.7 million, which was enough to buy the beach from the original owner. And today, the beach is run as part of the Able Tasman National Park, where it's free and open to the
0: public. Yeah, it's a, definitely a feel-good story, but I actually think I can top this story because One thing I learned this week is that New Zealand is home to the first of its kind, a nationwide secret Santa gift exchange. So this program started on Twitter back in 2010 when one New Zealand user suggested that anyone interested should connect through the site and then dig through the post of their assigned person in order to sniff out clues about the kind of gift that they might like. The first couple gift exchanges proved so popular with the public that in 2013, New Zealand's postal service actually signed on as the official sponsor. So the program continued in the years since even adding a physical warehouse to help deal with all the packages. Now thousands of Kiwis take part each year and it's all for the sake of making a stranger's holiday just a little bit brighter.
2: Oh, I really like that and and I think it is better than my beach story. And it's also seasonal, which is right. which is great. So so congratulations I think you <laughs> you get the trophy.
0: All right, well, that's going to do it for today's Part Time Genius. For myself, Mango, Gabe, and Lol, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Part Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio.